0: with me. If you want to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to continue in our study going verse by verse through this great epistle, this great letter from the Apostle Paul to his protege in the faith, a man by the name of Timothy. Let me again thank Amanda for leading us this morning. I always love hearing your voice. It's so beautiful and so thank you for that. Give her a round of applause and it's never an easy thing coming into a, a church that you don't lead in every single week, and so thank you for doing that this morning, and, and you'll lead us again during our response time. But First Timothy, or Second Timothy chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 5, only verse 5 this morning. I want to speak to the subject of a mother's deposit on this Mother's Day, and uh, you know, there's no one quite like mom. No one quite like mom in our lives. I mean, think about what our moms have done for us. They've done literally everything for us, and they've taught us so many things. Not that, that dad is absent, not at all. And dad should be present, and many times dad is present in homes. But there's nothing quite like a mom. She's wonderful. Came across a little uh, story or, or, or a short essay of what a mother is, written by a man by the name of Fred Cruz. And so let's listen to what he says about what a mom is. He says, somewhere between the youthful energy of a teenager and the golden years of a woman's life, there lives a marvelous and loving person known as mother. Mother is a curious mixture of patience, kindness, understanding, discipline, industriousness, purity, and love. Mother can be at one and at the same time both lovelorn counselor to a heart-sick daughter and head football coach to an athletic son. A mother can sew the tiniest stitch in the material for that dainty prom dress, as she is, and she is equally experienced in threading through the heaviest traffic with a station wagon. The mother is the only creature on earth who can cry when she's happy, laugh when she's heartbroken, and work when she's feeling ill. The mother is as gentle as a lamb and as strong as a giant. Only a mother can appear so weak and helpless, and yet be the same one who puts the fruit jar cover on so tightly that even dad can't get it off. A mother is a picture of helplessness when dad is near and a marvel of resourcefulness when she's all alone. A mother has the angelic voice of a member in the celestial choir as she sings Brahms' lullaby to a babe held tight in her arms. Yet this same voice can dwarf the sound of an amplifier when she calls her boys in for supper. A mother has the fascinating ability to be almost everywhere at once and she alone can somehow squeeze an enormous amount of living into an average day. The mother is old-fashioned to her teenager, just mom to her third-grader, and simply mama to her little two-year-old sister. But there's no greater thrill in life than to point to that wonderful woman and be happy to say to all the world, that's my mother. I believe this is how Timothy felt about his mama. Like the Apostle Paul, Timothy's mom had made an incredible deposit into his life. In Acts chapter 16, verse 1, we learn that Timothy's mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. It seems highly probable that Timothy's, Timothy's father, as a Greek, was an unbelieving man. He was a pagan Gentile. While Paul points out that his mother and grandmother were Jewish believers, they had richly deposited the Scriptures into Timothy's heart from childhood. This groundwork enabled the preaching of Paul's gospel to find the fertile soil needed there in the city of Lystra in Acts chapter 14 when Paul came on that missionary journey. Timothy heard the gospel message and believed in faith in Jesus. Places Dependence in Jesus Christ, as personal Lord and Savior. And his life at that moment was immediately transformed. Timothy's instant and then ongoing transformation was the result of God's gracious deposits made into his life. And last Sunday, we looked there as, at Paul's deposit as a mentor into Timothy's life. Today, I want us to see a mother's deposit into Timothy, thus a mother's deposit into our children and even into our own lives. So look with me in verse 5, and we're going to unpack this this morning. Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul writes this letter, remember, Paul's writing from a prison cell. He's already been on trial. He's facing immediate expe- ex- execution. He's nearing the end of his life. And so these more than likely will be the final words he has to say to his young mentee in the faith. And as he thinks about Timothy, as he thinks about what the, the investment that he himself has made into Timothy's life, he's reminded of Timothy's faith. And there was no doubt that Timothy had a sincere Faith. It was a genuine, authentic belief and trust in the lordship of Jesus Christ. This young pastor, you see, had not simply just given lip service to the Lord. So many people today can give lip service and do give lip service to the Lord. They will profess Jesus. They will say, I'm a follower of Jesus. But when it comes down to difficulties in their life, it's nothing more than lip service. That was not true of Timothy. For him, there was no straddling of the fence. He had jumped into the faith with both feet. You see, sincere faith, as I just said, is not always found. It's not always found in the person who has professed faith in Jesus. Paul, even in the end of this letter and other letters, he's going to talk about those who have left him, those who have departed from the faith. Some people just simply don't possess genuine faith in Jesus because they've never fully understood the gospel. Perhaps that's the reason they have never placed their faith in Jesus. Some think that being a Christian is important for cultural reasons, and so they will identify themselves with Jesus because it's expedient for them culturally. Others may just want to go to hell. They just don't want to go to hell. Think about that. They want fire insurance. Hopefully no one wants to go to hell time for new contacts. But there are people, and maybe it's someone here that The reason you profess faith in Jesus is because you want to escape hell. That's a pretty good reason to begin to think along those lines. But the reason you have put your faith in Jesus is not just simply not to go to hell. You place your faith in Jesus because you realize that I am a sinner. And the God who created me for himself has has separated himself from me because my sin forces that to happen. And I want to be in union with that God who created me. Because there's no happiness, no joy, true, genuine life lasting joy apart from that relationship and so the greatest thing in the world for a person to do is to say yes to Jesus not just simply to escape hell that's not the case here for Timothy He understood the gospel. He fully embraced the gospel. He understood the cost of what the gospel would mean for him as a follower of Jesus. And he was willing to pay the price. You see, faith for Timothy was not a cultural issue. It was not culturally acceptable to be a follower of Jesus in his day and age. It may be somewhat cultural for us, but that day is leaving. Right? America is changing. And I would say, in many ways, that's for the good. It's weeding out this cultural Christianity that we've had for so long, where it's easy to feel like we're in the faith just simply because we know the language. We're going through the motions, but that day is leaving. It's not culturally relevant to be a follower of Jesus in America today. But that is good news for the church. It's good news for the proclamation of the gospel. For Timothy, it was not a way to get ahead. It was not a way for him to network with others. It wasn't a business plan for him. It definitely. It's not just a way of escaping punishment for sin. See, faith for Timothy was all about Jesus, and it was making his great name famous. Where did he learn how to live like this? Where did he learn to have this sort of faith? Paul tells us that it was the deposit that was first laid down in his life by his grandmother and by his mom. It was a deposit also that Paul came and put there as well. The deposit of the Word of God. began with his grandma. Our grandmas wonderful, man. Grandmas are wonderful. I mean, you go to grandma's house. When I was a kid, it was like going back in time a little bit, though. I mean, every generation is different. I, I remember my grandpa like, man, what is wrong with these kids? They're just everything's fast. He used to my, my my dad's dad, so the one I'm named after. I'm the third, so he used to fuss because I talk so fast, and he's like from East Arkansas, he talks slow, and 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 I talk fast. I'm like you you went to Michigan. My dad is from Michigan. You married a Michigan woman. You should understand fast talking, but he used to fuss with me about how fast I talked and and the way we did stuff, and so his generation doesn't understand my generation, and now I don't fully understand my kids' generation. That's just the way it works, but when I went to my grandparents' house, though it felt like somewhat going back in time, it was a good thing. It was a slower pace. It was a wonderful thing, and grandma always had something good to eat on both sides of my family. Always good things to eat. When I went to my mom's house, my mom's parents' house, there was always brown beans every single day on the stove. I love brown. If I was on death row today, and good thank God I'm not, but if I was on death row and they said, Here's the last meal for your life, what do you want? I would say, I want brown beans with ham hock in them. I want my mama's or my grandma's fried potatoes. I want some fresh cornbread and a cold glass of sweet tea. Not too sweet, but Arkansas sweet tea. Not that kind that rips your enamel off like Chick fil A tea. But not so bitter like it's from the North, right? It's kind of a mixture of all that. That's what I want for my meal. Grandma was an incredible woman. Grandma cooks well. We love our grandmas. I I think there ought to be a grandma's holiday like there is Mother's Day and Father's Day. This reminds me of a short essay that James Dobson included in his book, What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women. The essay was written by a third grader. So this is going to be funny. It's called, What is a Grandmother? This little third grader says, A grandmother is a lady who has no children of her own. She likes other people's little girls and boys. A grandfather is a man-grandmother. That's funny. You didn't get that. A grandfather is a man-grandmother. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> he goes for walks with boys, and they talk about fishing and stuff like that. Grandmothers don't have to do anything except be there. They're old, so they, don't, they shouldn't play hard or run. It's enough if they drive us to the market where the pretend horse is and have a lot of dimes ready. <laughs> or if they take us for walks, they should slow down past things like pretty leaves and caterpillars. Caterpillars, They should never say hurry up. Usually grandmothers are fat. <laughs> but not too fat to tie, t- to tie your shoes. They're just kind of fat. They wear glasses and funny underwear. <laughs> they take their teeth and gums out. Grandmothers don't have to be smart, only answer questions like, why isn't God married, or how can, how can dogs chase cats? You all know those answers, right? Why God's not married? Grandmothers don't talk baby talk like visitors do, because it's hard to understand. When they read to us, they don't skip or mind if it's the same story again. Everybody should try to have a grandmother, especially if you don't have television, because they are the only grown-ups who have time. Amen. It's good. So if you were offended by being fat or having funny underwear, you were encouraged by the last part. (laughs) I Remember, I didn't write this. This was a third grader and not one of my children. (laughs) Timothy's grandma was a woman by the name of Lois. The Bible tells us that she made a spiritual deposit in his life. She made the deposit first by making this deposit in his mother. Think about that. The reason you... May have the gospel in your life today is because your grandma deposited in your mom or dad who then deposited in you. Lois made a deposit in Eunice. Eunice made a deposit in Timothy. And the two of them spiritually invested themselves in this young man is what Paul's telling us. See, Timothy possessed a sincere faith because his mom and his grandma had a sincere faith. That's what Paul is telling us as he writes to Timothy. So moms, listen up this morning. You want the best for your kids? You want your kids to succeed in life? You you want them to do great things? You want their lives to be full of joy and goodness and gladness and, and, and the goodness of this world? And we all do, right? Moms and dads. Well, there's something that we need to understand this morning. Something that moms need to understand on this Mother's Day. And here it is on the screen. A faithful model of the gospel is the greatest deposit a mom can make in her children's lives. That's the greatest deposit. And today on our, on our television sets, on our news progra- programs, what we're seeing is that these parents, the wealthy parents in our country, are making financial deposits and giving their kids a leg up to get in fancy universities and, and do things like that. And they think that's going to give them l- the leg up. See, the greatest deposit is not getting your kid into the, the best university. The best deposit you can make in your life, your kid's life, is to live the life of Jesus before them, point them to Jesus, and allow them an opportunity to faith into Christ. The themselves. That's a good place to say amen. Thank you, Barbara. You're the only one listening to me this morning. A faithful model of the gospel is the greatest deposit a mom can make in her children's lives. Let me give you three truths about this deposit as we see here in this verse. Truth number one, you can only deposit what you possess. You can only deposit what you possess. I heard about a man who was raised in a pastor's home. When he was a young boy, his godly mom used to rock him to sleep each night, and she used to sing to him. There she rocked him. She didn't sing him the little lullabies and little ditties that many parents, and there's nothing wrong with them, but many parents would sing. What she did is she sang the hymns of the faith. When he was in the crib, he remembers her leaning over and singing hymns like this, "Oh, mighty fortress is our God, or a mighty fortress is our God. Hymns like, And Can It Be? More love to thee, O Christ. My Jesus, I love thee. And come thou, fount of every blessing. These are the hymns and others that she would sing over him as she rocked him to sleep. He said, I remember. I remember those hymns. In fact, when I got into church, I heard, I had heard and learned most of the hymns that we sing. Think about the gospel deposit that was for them. You say, well, those are just songs. Yeah, those are songs that spoke of the gospel. They pointed him to Jesus. And so they, when they clashed with the gospel, there was a wonderful, wonderful marriage there in his heart. She made a deposit. How was she able to make the deposit in his life? She first possessed it. How was Lois and Eunice able to make a deposit into Timothy? They first possessed it. See, the deposit is a banking term. It's the idea that a sum of money is placed or kept in a bank account. It usually means that there's interest to be gained or some, there's a payback for your investment. It can also speak of the action of placing something in a specified place. You see, if I'm going to make a deposit into my account at the bank I first have to have something to deposit I remember uh, when I was in college I went to the bank there in my hometown and I was going to make a bank deposit right back then we actually used checks and back then we probably used checking deposit slips and so I was supposed to have those two things in my hand and so I remember going into Arvest Bank there in front of Walmart in Springdale Arkansas and I was going to make my deposit I'm going to deposit my paycheck into my banking account so I could pay my truck and my boat payment and have some gas money right and probably some eat-out money. I wasn't married at that point. I was living the bachelor life. And I remember standing there in line. The line is long because it's a Friday afternoon or Friday evening. Everybody's doing the same thing I'm doing. I get up there finally after 10 minutes or so. I'm going to make my bank deposit. And I stand there in front of the teller, and she looks at me with these eyes of like, what are you doing here? Where's, Where's your stuff? And I'm like, "It's and there's nothing there, right? There's nothing on the counter. There's nothing in my hand. I'm searching my pockets. There's nothing. I walked into the bank. I stood in line, I went to the teller's window, and there's nothing in my hand that I'm possessing. I left it in the truck. Looked like an idiot. Had to go back out there, wasted all that time, get my stuff, walk back in, and had to do it all over again. You can't deposit something that you don't possess. And moms, you can't either. Lois and Eunice were able to deposit the gospel in Timothy because they first possessed it themselves. This truth leads us to a second. Your deposit has to be more than verbal. It must be by example. It must be by example. That's what Paul's laying out here. He's saying Lois and Eunice had the gospel. They deposited it in you, they possessed it. It wasn't just verbal, they lived it. You have a sincere faith, Timothy, because your mom and grandma had a sincere faith. This morning, I want you to think back to your childhood. Think about when you were a kid, after your parents told you to do something, what was your first natural response? Why, right? I hear this all the time. Why do I need to do that? What was your parents' rebuttal? Because I told you so, right? I use that same phrase. Doesn't really get much traction, but I use that phrase. Because I told you so. Because I said so. That's usually what they said. I remember hearing it. That's true that children should obey their parents simply because we're the parents, Right? So that answer is is correct because I said so. You should obey because your parents are the authority. And it's true that one of the ways parents educate their children is through verbal commands and instruction. We can't really teach anything if there's not a verbal command to go alongside of it. But here's something that we need to understand here. We must couple it with a model. So you want to instruct in the Word of God, you want to teach what is right, you want to show them or or, or teach them verbally what to do, instruct them what to do, but it must be coupled with an example that backs up and enforces what you've been verbalizing. It's been said that more is caught than is taught. See, if you're prone to raising your voice in the home to get your way, guess what your children's... Natural thing to do is raise their voice. Why? Because they learned it from you. Uh, Here's what you don't have to do in that scenario. You don't have to pull your kids aside and say, all right, I've got a flow chart here. I've got some instructions on this piece of paper. Here's what you do if you want to get your point across. Number one, raise your voice. Number two, raise your voice even higher. Number three, smack somebody so that they will listen to you. You don't have to do that. You model it and they pick it up, right? That's true for anything that we have in our homes. More is caught many times. Than it's taught. Don't misunderstand. Good deposits do have verbal instruction. Here's some things that Deuteronomy 6 would tell us to do. We should teach the word of God to our children. You should teach the word of God to your kids, to your grandkids, to your great-grandkids. You should have conversations about faith in Jesus. It should not be on the shoulders of me and our staff and our small group leaders to teach the kids in our church primarily the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's my responsibility as a dad to teach my kids, and it's your responsibility as a dad and mom to teach your own kids. But you should have those conversations. You should explain theological concepts to your kids, but it needs to go a step further. Truth should be modeled. It has to be applicable in your own life, reinforced by what your kids see in you. Otherwise, here's what they see. hypocrite. Someone who says, don't do what I do, do as I say, right? That goes real far, doesn't it? No, it needs to be one and the same. Lois and Eunice taught and they modeled. They made sure that their sincere faith in Jesus was lived out in front of Timothy. See, they were intentional about being a good and godly example before this young man. Here's the point. John Maxwell has made this statement many, many times. You can teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Reproduce who you are. It doesn't matter what comes out of your mouth. Who you are is what your kids are going to pick up on. And they know you very, very well. Your grandparents know you very, or your grandkids know you very, very well. The two have to match. So what benefit is it if if as a parent you can quote Scripture, talk theology with your kids, but your personal life fails to provide an example of sincere faith in Jesus? Answers, there's no benefit. In fact, Lee, in fact, it really means that it could be a detriment to their faith. Because they see in you hypocrisy. They see in you someone who, who would basically through their, your lifestyle are saying this. It's okay to be nominal in my faith. It's okay to say the right things but not do the right things. And you're okay with God. That's not what the Word of God says. And so we want to say the right thing. We want to do the right thing so that our kids hear and learn the right thing. May we never be nominal in our Christian walk. May we never be lukewarm in our commitment to Jesus. Moms, make sure you possess a sincere faith and then model that before your children. This is a, leads us to a third truth. You can deposit the gospel in the lives of your children, but they must believe on it themselves. Paul says, I am sure dwells in you as well. This sincere faith that was possessed by mom and grandma... Paul says, I am sure it dwells in you as well. What does that mean? It means there was a moment in Timothy's life, and we believe that it was in Acts chapter 14 when Paul came to Lystra. There was a moment in his life where the gospel deposit of the Old Testament that he learned from mom and grandma was recognized for what it was pointing toward when Paul preached the gospel and Timothy heard it and believed in it. But it was his responsibility to do so. So the statement reminds us that every child must do his or her own believing. Here's a statement we ought to all memorize. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. What does that mean? You can't ride the coattails of your grandma to heaven. You have to believe yourself. I can't and will not get into heaven because I had my mom and dad and grandparents who believed in Jesus, and that was sufficient for me. No, it doesn't work that way. I have to come to a place in my own life where I say yes to Jesus. My children can't and will not go to heaven because I'm a follower of Jesus. Mom's a follower of Jesus. Or, God forbid, I'm a pastor if they even wanted to rationalize that. That won't get them anywhere. They have to pl- come to a place where they say, I'm a sinner, I'm undone, I'm separated from God, the just penalty for my sin is upon my life, but I see in the gospel a way of escape. I see in the gospel freedom and forgiveness. I see in the gospel Jesus who loves me, and I want to faith in to him. It has to be their decision. So our responsibility as Christian parents is to teach the Word of God. It's our responsibility to point to Jesus. It's our responsibility to model the gospel before our kids. It's not the responsibility of parents to save them. You can't do it. So if you're holding that burden on your shoulders, please let it go today. That's not your burden to carry. You're a steward for the children God has entrusted to you. All you're supposed to do is to point them to Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to do the rest. To draw them to faith in Jesus. Proverbs 22.6 says this on the screen. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This proverb tells us that we should point the way. It tells us to give them the right coordinates in life. It also gives a promise that says when we do so, there's going to be a reward for that. There's going to be a dividend for that. There's going to be fruit on the other side of what we're doing. I've known Christian parents who felt like failures because they've tried to model this in their own lives, in their own homes, and the result of what they were trying to do was nothing but failure. As parent, their, their kids walked away from their parental guidance, right? Some in this room may be able to testify to the same thing. You feel like failure perhaps. You feel the, the weight of that because you did everything you possibly could. You prayed, you cared, you, you shared, you, you tried to point them to Jesus and yet they have walked away from the gospel. Here's something from this pastor this morning. Feel the freedom of Jesus. It's not on your shoulders for them to believe. It's on your shoulders to point the way. It's on your shoulders to model before them a good, godly model that says this is what Jesus can and wants to do in a person's life. But it's not your responsibility for them to believe. And so you say, well, this verse is wrong, right? This is an error in the Bible. No, it's not true at all. We need to understand something about Proverbs. Proverbs are general truths. That means they are truths that are generally true. For the most part, when we take our kids and we raise them and we teach the Word of God to them, they will turn out the way we would want them to be. They will be Christ followers, but it's not true in every single case. Does that make sense? They're truths that are generally true. So Today, if you feel shame and embarrassment because your kids have forsaken the faith, the faith that you pointed them to, you shouldn't. You can only teach and model the gospel. You cannot make them to believe. They must do it themselves. I don't want to necessarily call your kid a horse, but the old saying, you can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink, is true here, right? At least it's not a donkey. You needed to laugh. No one's laughed in a while, so I'll just try to give you a chuckle. So, what do you do? As a parent who has children like that, what do you do? Here are a few things. Pray for their repentance and faith. Pray for them. You say, "Well, I've been praying for them. Continue to pray. Continue to pray. Pray for their repentance. Pray that they would see their sin. Pray that they would begin to to believe by faith in Jesus. And don't hold back in your prayers. I I think sometimes we as parents, we may want to pull back because we don't want our kids to experience something too painful, too difficult. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Pray, Lord, take the gloves off and do whatever's necessary to get their attention and to see your goodness. Take the gloves off. Lord, I I pray that they would smack their face against the, the, the wall of life, that they would understand the reality of their sin. God, if you have to totally destroy them in this life to preserve them in the next life, God, may that happen. That ought to be a prayer for a parent who has wavered children. Because it's better to suffer here For a time than to suffer there for eternity. As you do that, as you pray boldly for your kids, don't ever make an excuse for their sin. Don't ever make an excuse. for You say, I love my kids. I, I just want them to be happy. Don't ever make an excuse for their sin. If your child, if they're 45 or 55 or 25 or 10, never make an excuse for their sin. Don't say it's just the way they're doing it. It's just them expressing themselves. Oh, it's just them exploring new ways. No, never make an excuse for a sinful lifestyle. I've known Christian parents who who have children who have embraced a homosexual lifestyle, and and all of a sudden their theology changes because their kids now are experiencing that, and they don't want to make them feel discomforted, or they don't want to make them feel ostracized, and you you can love them and embrace them without ever embracing their sin. Don't ever make an excuse for it. But help them to understand that sin separates from God. And the only way for them to experience true joy and happiness is to repent of that sin and faith into Jesus. Love your kids, but never excuse their sin. And as you do all of this, continue to make spiritual deposits in their hearts. Share the word of God with them. Model the gospel before them. And invite them to believe on Jesus. Make it your mission to lead your kids to faith in Christ greatest deposit a mom can ever make in a person's life or child's life is the gospel. And so if you're 85 years old this morning as a great-grandma and you've got a son or a daughter or grandchildren or great-grandchildren who have yet to place their faith in Jesus, it's not too late to make a spiritual deposit until I'm standing over your casket and we're putting you six foot under, right? Or some other pastor. That's a good place to laugh. I got to come up with some better jokes or train y'all better. Invite your kids to believe on Jesus. On this Mother's Day, we're reminded how amazing moms are. Where would we be without them? Man, we'd be nowhere. Moms are full of love, they're full of empathy, full of energy, at least when they have their coffee. They keep the family train running smoothly down the track. I, I, my wife was gone for the last two weekends and so when she's out of town I'm reminded how inept I am at doing some things. And so we're thankful for moms. Moms, thank you for what you do. Thank you for the deposit you make in your children's lives. Thank you for forming and influencing the next generation. Remember three things. You can only deposit what you possess. Your deposit has to be more than verbal, it needs to be by example, and you can deposit the gospel in the lives of your children, but they have to believe it themselves. What kind of deposit are you making? Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you for moms. On this day, I pray that they, those sitting in this room have been honored. They feel um, loved. They feel appreciated. God, help us as husbands, as dads to not just make this a one-day-out-of-the-year type of thing, but, Lord, to learn ourselves how to have ongoing honoring of our wives and blessing them because they're such wonderful mothers to our children. But, God, we thank you for this example we find in 2 Timothy 1 of these two ladies who invested so wonderfully in this young man named Timothy. God, may the moms in our church make that same sort of deposit in their children. And God, may it continue to live out and to be passed down from generation to generation to generation so that we could be able to, to, to look into the future 100, 200, 300 years from now and see the legacy of faith that's been passed down from one mom to her children, to her children, to the children. Thank you for these ladies. This morning as we move into a time of response to your word, God, I I pray that um, you just help us to be open. Lord, what is the spirit of God been speaking to our hearts and our minds? The message is not just for, for moms today, it's for dads, it's for men, it's for women, it's for grandparents, it's even for children. So God, what is it that you would have us they say yes to? What is it that you would have us to bring before you this morning and say, God, here's what you've revealed. Here's what you want me to do with it. I'm just simply responding in faith and obedience, God. What is that for us? God, it could be that some need to put their faith in Jesus. It could be that children in here realize that they can't ride the coattails of mom and dad. They need their own faith in Jesus. It could be that Moms and dads just need to come before the Lord and pray for children who are not walking with you. God, what is it for us today? I pray the Holy Spirit would have freedom to move. God, I pray that our hearts would be open, our minds attentive. God, our answer would simply be yes to whatever you're laying upon our hearts. So we pray for your allegiance, we pray for your guidance, and we pray, Lord, that we would be obedient in Jesus' name. Amen.